Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you that we can celebrate that you are here with us. Heaven's love come down to us. We who are trapped on this planet and lost in our foolishness, yet you reach down with your grace and your love and your presence that you might be with us. Alleluia, Lord. We celebrate you. We thank you. We rejoice in you. And as we look into your word together, Lord, fill us with hope. Fill us with joy at what you have done. We pray in Jesus' name. I love Christmas. I always have. I could do without the consumerism of it, (laughs) the stress of Christmas, the traffic of Christmas. But there's a lot about Christmas I've always loved, ever since I was a child, because our family really celebrated Christmas. From the time my mom started putting up decorations in the house and we tromped through the woods finding the perfect tree, which we never found, but we still tried. And we'd bring that tree back and decorate it. And my mom would begin baking fudge and almond roca and lots of different kinds of cookies and the smells would fill the house. And there was just this anticipation of Christmas Day, this hope, this anticipation that it was coming. And though life has changed a lot, I still feel that way as Christmas approaches. There's that sense of anticipation and this excitement that it's coming. The day is coming. It's, it's almost here. And it's exciting, and the kids especially, as they get that sense of excitement of Christmas coming. And though the day itself is sometimes a disappointment, <laughs> yet that anticipation is a wonderful part of Christmas. The only thing I can think of to compare to that kind of anticipation is the anticipation of a baby coming. As you're waiting for the baby to come and the, and the signs that it's coming soon get greater and greater as the womb expands and the baby starts to kick and maybe you have an ultrasound and you get to see the baby moving and hear the heartbeat and all of that and there's this anticipation that the day is coming the baby will be here. To anticipate means this, to feel excited, hopeful, or eager about something that is going to happen. Christmas is a time of anticipation. And though we don't know exactly when Jesus was born, yet I think it's wonderful that we celebrate his birth in the middle of winter when darkness is at its height when it's the coldest, when you begin to get weary of winter. You bring Christmas in and there's this excitement that, yes, there's hope for more. This will not last forever. Things will get better. We can live by hope. That's why it's such a tragedy in the book of Narnia when the white witch has taken over Narnia. And and as they said, it was always winter and never Christmas. Never Christmas. You see, Christmas brings hope and anticipation and joy in the midst of the darkness. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what babies bring. Babies always bring hope. 
don't they? That sense of anticipation that there's life here, there's more coming, even in the midst of darkness and death that we all experience. Christmas reminds us that no matter how dark it may seem, there's always hope. There's always reason to anticipate something better, something more. We anticipate, as believers in Jesus Christ, Christmas, because it's a day of hope. It's a hope and a reminder that that we've just heard and sung, God is here among us. Emmanuel, God with us. He is present. He's at work in the world, and He will completely set all things right one day. That's the hope of Christmas. And the reason we anticipate that, the reason we have that kind of hope is because of a baby that was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem in a cave placed in probably a stone feeding trough when he was first born. But it wasn't just any baby, was it? (laughs) It was Jesus. Jesus was prophesied long before he ever came. He actually was prophesied many hundred years before he burst forth from the womb. The Jews got a message. A baby is coming and he is the one who will set all things right. But imagine, they were told to anticipate a baby coming. And in the passage we look at today in Isaiah chapter 9, they had to wait for 700 years. That's a long time to wait for a baby, isn't it? You could go through a lot of ice cream and pickles in that period of time. (laughs) Kosher pickles, of course, because he was a Jew. (laughs) Well, we want to look at this passage together in chapter 9 of Isaiah that tells us about the hope of Jesus' coming. It's a passage that helps us understand really what Christmas is all about, and it helps us understand that Christmas is more than just a story, a wonderful story about a baby being born. It's actually a revolutionary event. Christmas is radical, and it changed the world forever. And as we look at this passage, I think it'll help us begin to live by hope today in a greater way. So in Isaiah 9, we hear from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied from about 740 probably B.C., for a number of years past 700 B.C. He was a prophet who spoke both to northern Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was divided into two countries, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at this time. But Isaiah prophesied that because the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, these two countries, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, had not walked with God for many years, The judgment was coming. The northern kingdom was going to be wiped out by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom, a number of years later, would be wiped out by the Babylonians. And this was Isaiah's prophecy, his task to tell them what was coming because they were going to experience the consequences of not walking with the God who loved them. But this passage, as in much of Isaiah, is a message of hope in the midst of that. A hope that no matter how dark it seems, God is at work and has a wonderful plan. It's a message of anticipation. 
God is planning to bring restoration, redemption, shalom, peace. How? Through a baby who was coming. Isaiah 9 begins this way. And it shows us the need for hope and at the same time what we hope for. Chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, He, God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. One reason we need hope so badly is because this world is a mess, isn't it? We all experience that. We live in a world that's a place of struggle and difficulty. And here in particular, Isaiah points out that it's a place of gloom, a place of distress, a place ultimately of rejection, where it says he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. It's the word that means to take lightly, that that God took lightly this whole area of Galilee that he's describing, the northern part of Israel that was about to get destroyed by Assyria and for the next 700 years became a place of humility and rejection because the Jews didn't live there. There were Samaritans, there were half-breeds that came in and so in Jesus' day, Galilee was seen as a place of hicks and backwards people and half-breeds. It was a place rejected by the real urban people of Jerusalem and the other major cities. So for many years, it was a place of rejection. But see, that characterizes our world, doesn't it? Our world is a place of rejection. We all experience that to some degree. There's, there's in our families, wherever we are, the world we live in is a place where there's broken lives, we're humbled, We're rejected by others. We experience that rejection and brokenness in a variety of ways. Peoples and races and genders experience a certain amount of rejection. It happens everywhere. But notice the hope he gives us. He says, in the past there was gloom, but in the future he will honor, give weight to Galilee of the Gentiles. What's he saying? Well, I think directly what Isaiah is talking about is that when Jesus came, where did he center his ministry? In Galilee. Where did he grow up? In Nazareth, which is in Galilee. Where did he choose his disciples from? Galilee. You see, this place that was so rejected is promised to become the very dwelling place of the incarnate God himself. That's what God does. He comes to the place that's experienced such rejection and he dwells there. (laughs) He comes into our lives when we've experienced rejection and he dwells in us. He honors us with his presence. God here with us. And when he dwells inside us, suddenly we have hope. The world is turned around. We have honor and respect. So the world, the reason we need hope is because there's rejection in the world. Secondly, we need hope because there's darkness in the world. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. 
a light has dawned. Another aspect we experience in this world, every one of us, is darkness. Darkness. And as he says, even the darkness of death. And it's hard. We, we struggle with that. It's hard to live in a world where there is such terror, death. We can't see the darkness. How many of you ever are afraid of the dark when it's pitch dark and you don't know where you're going? I think all of us should be <laughs> because the dark is terrifying. We, we don't know what's there. And I think when it de- the Scripture uses the word darkness and says this describes our world that we live in and that Israel was living in in those days, It's describing darkness in a variety of ways. It's describing moral darkness. A darkness where people don't choose good. They choose wrong. They choose harm to themselves and others. Mental darkness where you're confused and you don't see reality well and you're foolish. And so people, instead of seeing what's true and seeing God at work and said... They ignore God and they live life in their own way. They have foolish thoughts and they think things like, money can satisfy me. Now I understand money brings a certain amount of comfort, but can it satisfy our souls? No. But we live in darkness that makes us begin to believe the lies, the foolishness, because we can't see reality very clearly. We live in a world of darkness also spiritually where we try to live apart from God and we think somehow I can do better without God so I'll do it my way. And the result is difficulty and struggle. We try to live life on our own and it never works. So people make choices like so many young people today who think living together before marriage is fine. Many Christians do that. Why? Well, they've bought into the darkness around us, the foolishness, and they don't understand the consequences because of the darkness in which we live. But here's the hope in the darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. You see, that's what God brings, is light in the midst of the darkness. That's what we hope for, where we can see reality, where God breaks through with his revelation brings light, so suddenly you can say, wow, I I see now, I see reality, I see who I am, I see who God is, I see that God's at work. That's what this world so desperately needs, is light in the midst of darkness, where we understand truth and freedom and joy. We're able to choose good, we're able to know God because of the light that is broken in through this baby who came. The world's trapped in rejection, in darkness, and in oppression. Verse 4, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. He's describing that in this world, what Israel was experiencing and what we experience is oppression, where there's a yoke, there's a bar of oppression, where you're powerless and you're forced to go where you do not want to go. Do what you do not want to do. And we know we live in a world that has much oppression and abuse. Many of you have experienced abuse of various kinds. And if you're aware of what's going on in the world and you think of the poor that are displaced and refugees and those who are used and manipulated, there's abuse and oppression of all kinds. 
And we in America say, well, we're free from all that, but that's not true. We experience oppression as well. We're oppressed by our consumerism, by our debt, by our financial pressures. We're oppressed by our own choices, by our own addictions, by our own sin, by depression, by powerlessness, inability to change ourselves. But here's the hope. He says, you have broken and shattered the yoke that burdens them. That's what he does. He breaks it. He brings joy. As in the day of Midian's defeat. Remember the story of Gideon in the book of Judges chapter 7 when Midian was oppressing the nation of Israel and God said, okay, take an army and go fight, but you have too many and you have too many and he got it down to 300 people and 300 men of Israel defeated the many, many thousands of Midian. And he says, that's what it's like when he comes. He breaks the oppression in our lives. Fourth, what we experience in this world that we can't escape from is war. Living embattled lives. Verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In this world, we live embattled, war-torn lives. Now that's true on the national scale, right? 20th century, There were more wars than any other time in history, more people killed in war than any other time in history, and it's carried right on to the 21st century. You know, we can't avoid war on that scale, but we also can't avoid war in our own lives, can we? We live embattled lives. We struggle, and we can't avoid that. It's part of this world. It's part of the fallenness in which we live. As humans, we can't ever bring true peace. I think I'm a pretty nice guy. (laughs) But I have a number of relationships right now where there are battles going on and there's brokenness and I'm working on healing those relationships. You see, we live embattled lives and we can't avoid that. But he says, and I love this picture here, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What's he saying? He's saying, not only will there be a ceasefire, and ceasefire is nice, because at least you're not at war, but if you're in a ceasefire, you're still wary of the other person, right? Or the other country. (laughs) It's like, okay, we're not fighting at the moment, but what he describes is everything used in war, even the clothing, the boots, the cloaks, everything is thrown in the fire because you'll never need it again. Isn't that the kind of peace we want? the kind of shalom we want, where we never have to worry about war again, (laughs) never have to worry about battles. That's what he offers us. That's what we hope for. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. So where can this come from? All the correction and reversal of what we struggle with in this world. Where does it come from? He tells us it comes from a baby. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. (laughs) A human will be born, someone who would come, who would be given to us, who would come to set all things right. But I want you to notice how he's described, how we are to look forward to him, what, what we should see him as. 
It says this baby will come and the government will be on his shoulders. Now, I want you to understand very clearly that Jesus did not come to establish a religion. Jesus did not come to make churches, ultimately. Jesus came to establish a kingdom, to reign as king over all the heavens and the earth. And he wants us to relate to him as a king. Now, the story of a baby born is wonderful and it reminds us of God's love, but he wants us to see him not just as a loving baby, God become man, but as a king who came to rule. But he's not like any other king ever born, is he? And Isaiah goes on to tell us what will be the marks of his reign. He says this, He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These words we sing, we know, we remember. He describes the qualities of this king. What is he going to be like? What can we count on in this king? You know, every king, every president is evaluated. Good president, bad president, you know, how is he going to be remembered? How is George W. going to be remembered? Media likes to talk about that. How would this king, Jesus, be remembered? First of all, as a wonderful counselor. He is all-knowing. All-knowing. He's the source of all wisdom. He's the one who knows you and me intimately. He he knows every hair of your head is numbered. He, he's numbered everything. He understands everything about you. He knows you inside out. He knows your struggles. He knows everything. He is the wonderful counselor. He created the world. And he knows what's best for us. And therefore, he's all wise. He's the source of the wisdom that we all need to live life. He is a wonderful counselor. He knows the answers and he offers them to us. This begs the question, where do you and I look for wisdom to live life? Where do we go? Do we go to self-help books? Whether they're Christian or not, do we, do we try to get those to, for the wisdom we need to live life? Do we, do we go to Oprah? <laughs> do we go to magazines? Do we go to the experts, whoever they might be? Or do we go to Jesus as the wonderful counselor who offers life, wisdom to us? As we especially soak in his word and spend time in his word, we begin to take on his mind and we begin to understand him and see life from his perspective and the darkness is pushed back. And we begin to see reality in a way where we're able to make wise choices in line with the creator and with our king. He's described as a wonderful counselor. He's also described as mighty God. Now, we understand that Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. I'm not sure that's what Isaiah is thinking. That may be part of it. That's the reality we know. But ultimately, I think what he's saying, he's mighty God. If he is, this king that would come would be all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's also all-powerful. 
He's in control of the world. There is nothing beyond His control. We can trust that He's in control, that the circumstances that come into our lives are not random, that He has a purpose in them. And even the hard things that God, though He doesn't want us to experience hard things in the big picture in the long run, yet He takes us through hard things so we might know Him more deeply. Where do you look when you need power to change yourself or to deal with the circumstances in your life? Do you look to the King, King Jesus, who came as a baby? Or when there's oppression or injustice in the world, what do you look to to change it, to deal with it? Governments or money or education or King Jesus? Do you look to Him? He's also described not only as mighty God, but as eternal Father. Now, I think in the Jewish mindset, what this means is that he's all loving. A father in their mindset was the one who protected and cared for and was was the one who took care of in his loving, gentle, tender touch. This king, Jesus, is all loving. He's an eternal father. He promises to protect and provide and care for us. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, Peter tells us. Where do you turn when you know you need to experience his love? When you know you need to be loved, to be cared for? Another person or to King Jesus? He reigns now. He provides that. He offers that to you. He loves you. He loved you enough to die for you. He is your eternal father. And he's the prince of peace. He's all healing. The word for peace is shalom, as I mentioned earlier, the Hebrew word. And shalom means much more than what we think of when we think of peace. Peace to us is kind of calm. But peace in the Hebrew word shalom means everything is well. There's a completeness and a wholeness and a fulfillment and a goodness about everything. There's complete security, complete rest where your soul is able to say, everything's fine, forever. (laughs) And he's the ruler, the prince of that. He provides that in his rule. Where do you turn when your soul is broken and you need healing or your relationships are broken or when you're overwhelmed by a broken, evil world? full of the things we talked about, rejection and darkness and oppression and war. Where do you turn? You see, he is king. He is king and we can trust him. That's the kind of king he is. And now he says something about his kingdom. And this is important for us to understand because many of us came from traditions that say, well, yeah, Jesus came to be king, but he's not really king yet. Someday he'll be king. But if you read the scriptures closely, it says he's already king. He reigns as king right now. And he wants us to join in and be part of his kingdom. Listen to what he says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What does he want us to know about his kingdom? For one, it's already begun. 
It's present now. Jesus puts it this way himself in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. The beginning line of that Great Commission, you know, going to all the world, etc., we often skip over, but probably the most radical part of that whole section is Jesus has ascended from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. He's been raised from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. Notice what he says. Jesus came to the disciples and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. All authority has already been given to him. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was crowned king then. He reigns as king now in heaven and in earth. Do you realize how radical that is? He's over all the nations. (laughs) He is king now. He reigns now. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, he's talking about the power towards us that God grants us. And it says, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see, he is Lord King now. There is nothing that a leader of any nation can do without being under Jesus' authority. He's king. He reigns now. He's working out his purposes even in the evil choices that people make. He is king now. And notice it says that his, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. In other words, his kingdom is constantly expanding. That happens in our own lives, right? We, we submit to Jesus and then he comes and he says, you know what? I want to be king of this part of your life too. And we say, well, I don't know that I want to give that up. I, I've, I've run that part of my life for a long time. And he says, no, I want to be king of that part of your life too. And his kingdom begins to expand and he draws us and woos us so we learn to submit that part of our lives as well. And he takes more and more ground in us individually. But he's also taking more and more ground for his kingdom in the world as well as he brings more and more people to himself He is king and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Uh, You you ought to explore a little bit what God is doing as king in the Muslim world. There are literally by the day thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims coming to Christ. And you know how they're doing it? Missionaries often can't get into those countries. So how are they coming to Christ? Through dreams. They have dreams about Jesus. Jesus confronts them in their dreams and they realize he is king and they submit their lives to him without ever talking to a Christian. Is Jesus Lord? Absolutely. And nothing can stop his lordship. He is king. He is Lord. But his kingdom is increasing more and more. He's taking more ground and expanding his kingdom. And the passage ends this way, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 
You see, the Father himself, all who God is, guarantees that the kingdom will expand and that Jesus is Lord and that nothing can get in the way of what he is doing. You see what the real message of Christmas is, at least a huge part of it, is that God has come, Jesus has come. He is here to be king, to reign over our lives and to reign on the earth. And it's a kingdom that will expand forever and ever and ever. So what should be our response to him as king? Let me give you three responses that I think are appropriate. One is to rejoice. (laughs) The king's here. God has come to set us free from all we've experienced in the darkness and the oppression of this world and rejection. He's come to reverse all that and to bring life and hope and goodness. So we should rejoice. Secondly, we should join in. Join in to the kingdom. Be part of it. Begin to see that we have a place in his kingdom, that he wants to use us to expand his kingdom. So let's submit to him and let him change our lives. Let's be tools and instruments of His wherever you are to realize He is King, not just in a church, but everywhere. So as you go to the checkout line at Target or Albertsons or wherever you are, God's already there. He's already reigning. He's already present. And so you can talk to that checker and say, Lord, where are you at work here? I want to anticipate your work. I I want to look for you. I want to be part of expanding your kingdom in this person's life and in this neighbor's life, and in this family member's life. Lord, I'm an instrument. I want to join in to what you're doing to drive back the darkness, to drive back the rejection that people live with, to drive out the oppression in individual lives and in our world as a whole. And I want to join in and be part of being a peacemaker to stop the wars and the conflicts. Again, in people's lives in relationships, and in the world as a whole. How can I be part of this? And to join in to what Jesus is doing in expanding His kingdom. He is King. So wherever He has placed you, we can join in to be part. In Philippians chapter 2. Wonderful passage. Paul says this, that Because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death. This is Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Is anybody exempted? No. (laughs) Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Father. You see, we should join in because we'll all bow eventually. (laughs) And either we do it willingly now or we do it as an enemy captive when he returns to finalize this king. So we have the opportunity. What should we do? Rejoice. We should join in and finally we should anticipate because though he is king now, his kingdom is not fully visible, is it? And we're told that it will be finalized when he returns to establish his kingdom forever and ever, sets up his throne in the new heavens and the new earth, and we get to experience his reign eternally. So we should anticipate the king who is yet to finalize his kingdom. 
Christmas is a nice story about a baby. That's wonderful, and we should celebrate it and be moved by it, that God came to dwell among us. It's fabulous. It's the greatest event in history. But Christmas is so much more than that. It's a reminder that the King has come. He reigns now. The kingdom is already here. It's expanding and bringing healing and life and driving back the darkness in our lives and in people's lives every day. It's a radical message, one that we are to celebrate together. We can rejoice and join in because Jesus has come as king. So now we want to celebrate his coming because what Jesus did when he came is he not only came and was born and lived and walked on earth, but he also died on the cross to carry our sin and open the door so that we could become subjects of his kingdom. The things that are so difficult for us on earth, the rejection, the oppression, the battles we face, the darkness in this world, Jesus bore on his own back on the cross. That's how he gives us the freedom we long for. So we want to take communion together now to celebrate that. So use this time to celebrate what he did when he came as king and to ask yourself and ask him, Lord, where do I need to submit to you more fully as my king?